Hello and welcome to the second edition of Parting Shots, a weekly roundup of the news at ADH with me, Fred Paul, and my colleague, Nick Cater. Nick, how are you? I'm good, Fred. I'm here with my gun loaded for that parting shot. What a great title, by the way. Well done. It was oh, your idea. Thank you. Yes. Well, we're going to come out guns blazing this week. What a week it's okay. been. We saw uh, China announce a bounty, $190,000, I think, on the heads of uh, former Hong Kong residents, who some of who now live in Australia. I, if one of them was my neighbour, I'd... Uh, I'd offer them refuge rather than take the 190 grand. Thanks very much. We also saw mm. France continue to uh, descend into civil war. There are parts of France that are now ostensibly no longer France, if you ask me. But coming back home, the big news of the week, which, uh, which has all been happening right this afternoon, is the wrapping up of the robo-debt inquiry. This is an inquiry of the scheme under the previous coalition uh, uh, Morrison uh, government, it, which was ostensibly to uh, get welfare recipients to pay back money that was presumably overpaid. Now, it was a pretty uh, aggressive policy and actually tragically led to some people wrongly accused and uh, some people even committed suicide over at the um, the inquiry has wrapped up today and the uh, the coalition does not come out of it uh, looking very good. But the upshot, the worst thing to happen to the party this week, I mean, there haven't been any uh, recriminations within the Liberal Party so far, but the worst thing to happen to the Liberal Party, in my opinion, was that it seems this morning Jared Rennick, who's a very good friend of ADH and one of the best senators in Australia, Queensland senator for the LNP, has reportedly lost his spot on the Queensland ticket and uh, may not be a senator after next uh, after the forthcoming election in 2025. So, uh, and he he will be he's a bit of a rogue a rogue member of the coalition anyway. So uh, he's now um, unshackled. And uh, his remaining time in the Senate will probably be quite entertaining, Nick. But uh, it's after that, be very entertaining, isn't yes. it? I mean, he always he always was a bit of a a loose cannon. He must have been um, a problem child for people <laughs> in the party room to some extent. But uh, at the same time, we need people like that in Parliament. We need in, pe into people people who think independently. Uh, that you know, we'll we'll obey party discipline when needed, but as prepared to go out there and um, you know, on a limb, as it were. Yeah, I, I we'll I fight for him. the people as well. Him. Yeah, I'd, I'll, yeah, I'll miss him too. Yeah, I mean, he's a great yeah. defender of ordinary people, and that's what uh, we expect from our. That's the least we expect from our MPs. Now, Nick, uh, with the usual way we kick off this uh, this podcast is our lesson of the week. What was yours? My lesson of the week is that I'm obviously. A complete oddball, Fred. I'm, I'm completely, <laughs> we knew that already, yeah. Well, out of step with the rest of the country because I heard Anthony Albanese on Sunday defend the voice, and he said, "Why, you know, why should we vote for the voice?" He said, "Because it will make us feel better about who we are as a nation." Oh. I, I just feel great about who we are as a nation. <laughs> I, I couldn't feel better about who we are as a nation. Don't forget, I've I've voted with my airline ticket as a migrant. You know, I, I came here rather than, say, Venezuela. Yeah. And uh, I think the place is, you know, as Barry McKenzie said, the, 
the best bloody country in the world, no worries. You know, <laughs> I just think it is. And um, uh, so I, I, obviously I'm the only one because Peter Dutton thinks we all need to feel better about ourselves. Not Peter anyway. Dutton, Anthony Albanese. Anthony Albanese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it is a strange thing for a uh, for the leader of a nation to say that we need to feel better about ourselves. I mean. It's very strange, isn't yeah, it? It's you, a condescending I mean, you want to lead, thing. You want a leader that radiates confidence and yeah. excitement in his own country. You know, well, speaking about jingoism, though, my lesson of the week is not to take sport too seriously. After uh, Alex Carey, the Australian wicketkeeper, um, fairly and squarely ran out Johnny Bairstow in the second test at Lords, was the turning point of the test, and now Australia are two, two up in the series and are probably going to come home with the Ashes. But the thing about this incident, Nick, was that it was so confected the, the response from the Australians, you know, the the even, well, Anthony Albanese had his two bobs worth. He said, you know, um, typical Aussies always winning. Uh, but the his, uh, his British counterpart, um, Rishi Sunak, said, you know, wasn't in the spirit of the game. What struck me, Nick, was just how instinctively the media and the respective cricket fans of both nations, as well as the teams, simply fell into... Uh, jingo, nationalistic lines because, uh, you know, in, as, as far as Australia was concerned, we were conforming, complying with the rules of the game and it was it was out fair and square and the Poms were saying, oh, but that's not cricket, you know, and this is Lords and you've yeah. got to. But, the, you know, had the roles been reversed, had, had an Aussie stepped out of his crease inadvertently at the end of an over and been run out, well, it would have been us saying, "Well, that's just not cricket," and uh, the it, Poms would have been. It, Go on. It's a weird. It's a weird form of confirmation bias, isn't it? That yeah. you, <laughs> your, your team is right. So, but it, it, it is confirmation bias. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I remember as a, as a young kid going to the soccer, and it was amazing how we would always know from some way back on the on the Milton Road stand that. The, the the ball was offside. The ref the referee did not know that the player was offside, but we did. Standing, <laughs> uh, we knew as clearly as anything. But you know, I mean, you, you've you've worked in newspapers as long as I have. You know, you, you, the Daily Telegraph in Sydney is hardly going to come out with a headline that says actually the Poms were right. <laughs> is it? I mean, they're not going to send a newspaper. <laughs> That's not selling newspapers. And I grew up when I grew up. I was too young for the uh, Bodyline series, and so are you. But I, when I grew up. It was a it was a hugely popular dramatization on TV, and uh, it all it all came to a head. The Bodyline series came to yeah. a head at, at Adelaide Oval, and and uh, but you know, go on. If they're talk, talking about unsporting behaviour, I just thought the behaviour of the of the British fans, as I understand it, I wasn't there, but I understand it, in the members. Section. In the long room, in the long room, it, you mean? It, it, we're behaving like louts. Now, yes. that, that is. That is where the game's gone completely awry. Yeah. You know, you in the, the old days, I can say that being old, yeah. you know, you'd expect <laughs> them to sit around and go, oh, well, well played, you colonial yeah. chappies. <laughs> well done. Really good. Yes, you better yes. fair and square. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. But not now, apparently. No. Yeah, yeah. I think both sides are taking. Uh, I mean, I mean, if Australians have introduced anything to the to the spirit of cricket, it is that aggressiveness and a certain commercialisation of it too. I mean, Kerry Packer completely upturned cricket in the seventies by making it a, a very profitable 
um, sport to play as a player. You know, test players, test cricketers until then were, you know, were hardly pa- were paid pittance. But um, so I think, you know, mm. both sides now or all sides are adopting this sort of cocky, aggressive, um, winner-take-all attitude and that's the Australian contribution to the sport. For better or worse, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't really care because I, I, I don't follow much sport anymore, Nick. I, I've, you know, I've always been a really keen sports player and as an Australian I've always, uh, you know, I've, I've loved all kinds of sport and, and I'm pretty good at a few different kinds of them but, uh, but I just, yeah. I, it just bores me now and this, this incident this week absolutely confirmed it for me. It's just... It, it just falls down uh, very predictable lines and uh, and and it's all well, it, it's all yeah, froth and Fred, I think you're being a little unfair. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I still enjoy cricket, and, and that that first test was a, was a classic. Well, it was, was. yes, yes, and, and this one too. So we've had two fantastic tests. So yes, well, let's just get back game. to the watching the cricket then <laughs> and forget let's those stupid to, headlines. Let's get back to watching, but we, we need Peter Lawler here. He's, he's yes, talk, about cricket. I think yeah. since none of us can, I think we better back to politics. <laughs> well, let's so. get back to the politics. Let's cue our first grab. ADH broadcast live this morning a speech, uh, quite an important speech by Leader of the Opposition, Peter Dutton, uh, for the Institute of Public Affairs at uh, at, a, at a, a hotel in uh, Sydney this morning, and it was mostly focused on energy policy. Let's hear one of the uh, one of the key grabs from this morning's speech. From the renewables only campaign is that they're better for the environment under the government's plans by 2030. More than 58 million solar panels will need to be installed and almost 3,500 wind turbines built to reach our emission reduction targets. By 2050, the plan includes carpeting our landscape, including across national parks and prime agricultural land with 28,000 kilometres of new transmission poles and wires, the equivalent of almost the entire coastline of mainland Australia, at a cost of at least $100 billion. Oh, I thought you'd like this one, Nick, because this is right up your alley. You've you've actually got right amongst this, unlike a lot of reporters and commentators on this issue. You've gone and visited some of the the, the places where this mm. rewiring and windmills are going. I mean, the key thing for me from this, and I'll, I'll let you uh, talk about it at length, was that <laughs> this new wiring could encircle Australia. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean that's really putting it in terms where the Greens can no longer or, or, you know, sort of pedestrian environmentalists can no longer deny that this is an, an environmental catastrophe. Yeah, and I'm glad. It's rather gratifying to see Peter Dutton's obviously been reading my columns. <laughs> I've been writing about this, as you know, for some time. But, but I, well, one of the aspects I have written about is... It's the absolute destruction of the countryside that that occurs uh, with, you know, renewable energy, wind and solar. It, and, you know, I visited these um, uh, wind farms in construction phase. First thing that strikes you, Fred, is just the sheer size of them, you know, mm. 12 square kilometres, the one I visited, to push out a paltry amount of electricity at the end of the day. 
for some of the time. Yeah, assuming uh, the wind's blowing. But yeah. you just go and, you know, I think you've seen the video I shot there. Some others, we got it online if anybody wants to watch it, just to see these these bulldozers just cracking into the side of the, you know, the hillside and just ripping out rock. And it's a massive, you know, earthworks goes on to construct these things, as you know, and uh, you, you've got to get these 80-metre-long blades, you know, yeah. onto the site. So to do that, they have to basically build a, a new highway through virgin scrub. And it, it, it's just amazing that people think that this is somehow worthwhile, uh, that, that it's actually going to do anything. The negative environmental consequences are huge. Whereas, of course, as we go, we're always pointing out the benefits of small modular reactors. You know, to get that same amount of electricity or to get twice that amount of electricity and get it 24 hours, hours a day, you could just use an 18 hectare site that's already a power station so Liddell you can just carve out a little 18 hectare part of that much bigger site put your nuclear reactor on done plug, and dusted. plug the wires in which are already there yeah plug well them as- into the existing lines it's uh this <laughs> the cabling yeah one that got me when I was in Queensland was this what they call the copper string yeah. Which isn't a very helpful name, is it? No, no. Mount Isa, I don't know if you knew that, has never been on the grid. They've always had their own power station humming away there, and they've all been quite happy. I mean, it's only about 19,000 people, right, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But the, 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 the scheme has come. We've got to connect Mount Isa to the grid. 19,000 people have got to be connected to the grid. All right. What's that going to take? 1,100 kilometres of new wow. transmission line at a cost of – the Queensland government's already committed $5 billion to this. It'll probably be a lot more. Meanwhile, of course, the, the Bruce Highway is still a goat trap. So There's a great um, think tank up, on, up in Queensland called the Australian Institute for Progress and it's run by a bloke called Graham Young who explained to me once. Man. Great mm. man. Yeah, he explained to me once that this new interconnecting wire, these new interconnecting wires that Chris Bowen is assuming can be uh, you know, uh, wrapped around the the nation for the cost of a paltry $100 billion. Now, these are to connect various parts of the country to new renewable sources of energy production. So mm. what has to happen is, so if the sun isn't shining, i.e. it's nighttime, some, you know, in, in New South Wales and there's still a bit of sunlight left in South Australia, or the wind's not blowing in one place and it is in another, then the energy, then the electricity has to be shifted across vast areas. And it might need to be all the energy a particular region needs, say, you know, Western New South Wales, needs to get it from South Australia. So rather than it being generated locally, all the energy needs to come from another area. Now, if we were to continue with coal-fired power plants or, heaven forbid, embark on a nuclear program, that contingency wouldn't be necessary. And so it, if there were any interconnecting wires, it would be only in the, in the, on the occasion when there's some accidental, unforeseen blackout and it's only a minor requirement. Whereas if you need to, if you need to fuel all of Western New South Wales from South Australia because there's no wind or whatever, then then you need those wires need to be five or six times have five or six times more capacity 
than they do That's now. Right. So it, not only are we in, in, constructing 28,000 kilometres of wires, but they're five or six times thicker than they need to be and all that metal is being dug out of the ground. I mean, the the, the absolute hypocrisy of it is is mind-boggling, isn't it? it, it it's at every level. It's, it's expensive. It's not going to actually provide the solution because these only provide power part of the time. And... Um, you know, it's got to be pieced together in a very delicate fashion. I mean, we're supposed to – isn't climate supposed to be changing, Fred? We're supposed to have lots of, you know, winds and tornadoes and how are these cables <laughs> going to stand up to that? You well, know, the whole indeed. thing is 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 it's like an E-Day fix, you know. It's like they've got this idea in their head. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of the French, you know, the, the pre-revolutionary France. Yes. The king the king had this, had this great idea that we're going to build a harbour at Cherbourg to keep the French Navy, and they're going to do it by sinking these great oak poles around the harbour to keep the wind. The, the short, because they kept, as soon as they put them in, they kept falling over. And they well, spent that, that's a, that's huge a very quantities good... of money for yes. thirty years doing yep. this before they said, "Oh, it's not working, is it?" Well, that's a, that, that's a working. perfect uh, example because um, I was going to mention, you know, you you've been into parts of the bush. That are being, you know, um, devastated by these mm. the, the the roads and the foundations of these huge windmills. My as a you know as a surfer, my preoccupation is what happens in the ocean, and and Bowen is going is going full steam ahead with a forest of windmills off the coast of Gippsland in Victoria. And, the, I mean, it's a similar folly to what you just described the French did in, in pre-revolutionary yeah. times. The, these things are, are utterly bonkers. I mean, they the, the, the salt in the air decays the 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 chemicals the chemicals in the uh, the blades of the windmills so they decay quicker so they don't last as long but goodness gracious they are they must be the most insane shipping hazard right i mean remember mm. when the uh, pasha bulka washed ashore on in in newcastle that was a that oh, was yeah. a storm that storm the storm that hit the pasha on that day that was probably i don't know 10 or 12 years ago Quite a famous incident, you know, washed ashore on a, on a city beach, but that storm wasn't unusual. It was the kind of storm we get. We get one of those every year. Now imagine if some, you know, half asleep captain of a huge merchant ship or coal tanker or whatever is cruising up the coast and, and miscalculates the movement of the water or the wind. And winds up ploughing through this forest of windmills. It would, the carnage would be unimaginable. And now, on the other hand, Fred, yeah. I would have thought you're a surfer. You, you can tell me, but it, I think it'd be great for surfers. You, you could have a sort of, you could have a sort of surfing slalom, couldn't you? You could just be going around. <laughs> That's right. I think it, yeah. it, it had a new huge, huge new dimension to the sport. I think it's. Yeah. Well, there I might be some, there might sport. be something in that, but I mean, just as a quick aside, and we'll move on. The 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 greatest news in the world in the surfing world at the moment is uh, that the United Arab Emirates is about to embark on probably the best artificial wave pool in the world, and it will be powered by one of those five new South Korean um, small modular nuclear reactors. 
that the uh, that New, the nuclear surfing. Nuclear surfing. Get get me over there. I can't wait. Atomic yeah. surfing. <laughs> yeah, <great. laughs> okay, so let let's move on. These are um, I must remind the the listeners that uh, most of this is coming off our coverage of the week on ADH TV. And uh, the, that first grab, as I said, was uh, from Peter Dutton, his uh, speech, which we covered live from Sydney this morning. Well worth a listen and a nice little Q&A with IPA members afterwards. Um, Mr Dutton was uh, quite expansive on the urgent need for Australia to at least have a debate about uh, about nuclear. And he actually, at one point, he points out... Um, even uh, even uh, old mate Trudeau in uh, in Canada is uh, installing small modular reactors. So what on earth is why on earth is Australia lagging behind? But anyway, moving right along, let's move to your show, Nick, because you had uh, Stephen Shavura on a historian. But before we move on to that, I'd love you to just. Um, uh, revive some your your uh, your take on the cultural cringe, which was a, a most amusing um, uh, introduction to your uh, to your show this week. Well, the cultural you and I know the cultural cringe because we grew up when people talked about it. But I was just I was talking to Charlie at ADH, and um, it was new to him, so I had to explain what it was. <laughs> <laughs> the cultural cringe was it was it was coined of course by Arthur Angle Phillips, who wrote an influential essay noting that that uh, how educated Australians were making unfashionable un, 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 unfavorable comparisons between Australia and Britain and he, he said it was almost as if they had a little Englishman on their shoulders <laughs> trying to appease him you know <laughs> and what and thinking oh what would a cultivated Englishman think of this <laughs> so they were always sort of running down their own country you know because they thought it was better in in Europe <laughs> Alex Carey doesn't suffer from the cultural cringe. He didn't have a pom on his shoulder saying, should I run out Johnny Besto or not? He just threw the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so but it's back, of course. You know, they're all worried now. Uh, the voice people, are they're trying to browbeat us by saying, how awful will it look to the rest of the world? My favourite was our friend Troy Brampton. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh you, Troy. Yeah. The, the eyes of the world are upon us, <laughs> History is calling us. <laughs> History is calling us. It is a test for Australians. We must not fail. I think he he must have gone into chat GPT and, and said, give me give me four overused cliches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that that's it. And, and, and you know, Albanese was the same. It will send a signal to ourselves and to the world that we're a mature nation. He said, oh, I don't dear. need a signal sending sent to myself that I'm a mature nation. I might need a, a signal sent to myself to say, wake up. Yeah. You know, it's called an alarm <laughs> clock, right? Alarm <laughs> clock. But history I, I don't is really calling need too us. Many more single, history is calling. Goodness us. gracious! All right. Well, that's it. Yeah. Well, as as I said, you can uh, you can hear Nick's very eloquent uh, take on the cultural cringe at the start of his show on ADH TV. But let's move to the first grab from Stephen Shavura, a, uh, a historian uh, from Campion College in Sydney, uh, who you got to talk about the divisiveness of the voice to parliament. In a very radical way, it defines sort of two kinds of Australians, uh, Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians, and that 
that distinction between two kinds of Australians is enshrined in the Constitution. And over time, that is just going to lead to continual uh, division uh, between the two groups of people. now, Nick, I'd like to get your opinion on this. The the, the no vote is really gathering momentum now. Mm. And to people like you and I, you know, you and I have been following this closely from the start. And we have been saying, as a lot of other commentators have been saying, is this is divisive. It's racist. It's potentially apartheid, for goodness sake. But I think the no vote is getting its momentum, not from that, but just simply from the incompetence and arrogance from the government. What's your opinion? Oh, I think I think that's partly correct. I, I think basically, the government or Mr. Albanese, to be specific, doesn't <laughs> really have any reply, does he? He no. doesn't have, you know. So he comes out with this stuff about, oh, it'll make us feel good as a nation. You know, oh, great, give yeah. us a break. Yeah. That is not. That is not a pub-ready argument, is it? I no. can't see that cutting through in the front bar of any hotel that I've ever been to in Australia. So they just – he has no effort. But I think what's happening is people – it's like me. I mean, you and I. But I, I sort of – when it first came up, I thought, yeah, I, I, I want to believe in this. It sort of sounds mm. nice and I, I want mm. to be kind and, you know, decent. But it's one of those things that the more you feel a little bit uncomfortable about it at the start. The more you look at it, the more you think, this is so wrong, yeah. so completely wrong. And and uh, we talked about the, the, the Constitution, of course, of 1967. Harold Holt, bless his socks, you know, he did a lot before he went off for his big swim. Yeah. But he he, he, uh, he did two things. One, he, one, he uh, uh, abandoned the white Australia policy, right, because yeah. he didn't think that we should discriminate against race uh, uh, on the grounds of race on immigration. And secondly... He he passed the nineteen. He got the nineteen sixty seven referendum going, which ninety ninety point four percent I think voted yes. But the the point of the, the referendum was simply it said, you know, it removed any ability for the government to discriminate against Aborigines. Unfortunately, yeah. it left it enhanced a bit, said it could discriminate for them, which is probably a mistake in hindsight. But it was all about we're not going to discriminate. We're going to be the the constitution should essentially be colour blind. As they talk about the American Constitution being colorblind, yeah, and and yet, because what we're doing now is suddenly color and race is back, and it's ironic. We talked earlier in the week about that Supreme Court judgment uh, over um, uh, that case of affirmative action in the yes. USA. So the, the case was against, I think, Harvard University and one other uh, because they had policies that basically had quotas for. African Americans and and people who weren't African Americans said, "Well, wait a minute, we've been discriminated against, right? Places are being taken by African Americans," and the Supreme Court ruled that that's right, that you cannot discriminate positively or negatively on the grounds of race. That is unconstitutional yep. in America. We're we're just about to make it constitutional here. That that's you'll be able a to very good point. Yeah. Government. Yeah, I, did. I hadn't seen it in that context, and it, it, it's but it's equally alarming the the response from the usual suspects in the United States saying that you know to abandon positive discrimination is itself a form of discrimination. I mean, we can see oh, that's, that's nuts. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> but but the usual suspects are saying that in the United States, which is 
which is sad. I mean, if they were here, they'd be advocating for a yes vote. I mean, but the, the interesting development this week, other than the slide in the polls for the yes vote, is <laughs> was Linda Burney's appearance at the press club. I mean, that was, uh, that was uh, it was so bad, Nick that she got a standing mm. ovation from the media. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, if that doesn't tell you she was a, an absolute failure, I don't know what. But uh, she identified what was at issue here. Finally, someone from the government has said that this is, uh, th- this is hopefully going to improve uh, four aspects of Aboriginal welfare, um, health, housing, employment and education. Uh, if I remember them correctly, that's off the top of my head. But, I mean, th- th- how obvious does this need to be, Nick? I mean, you don't need a voice to fix those. She knows they're the problems. She's in government. If if she needs a voice to parliament to fix them, then it's because she's not listening to Indigenous people. I don't think she understands her own proposal, does she? The no. idea is that it's an, ab- an independent Aboriginal voice to parliament. And she's saying, yes, but this is what I'm going to tell them to talk about. Yeah. So they're not independent anymore. And in the end, what they can and cannot talk about and how the government should react to that is going to be decided by the High Court. So it's all out of their realm anyway. But no, her attempt to kind of limit it down, what it can say, you know, what yeah. it can talk about, trying to get rid of any idea that it could, for instance, demand the end of Australia Day. Um, because an Albanese is saying it's advice, but of course, if the word yeah. advice doesn't appear anywhere, they're making representations, which is a far more serious thing. And well, uh, yeah, and, and that's a that's an actual, you know, has legal um, implications. So, you know, and, that- and will will the government or will a Labor government say no to the voice? Well, Albanese has already said that he wouldn't. But look at the way the voice proposal was framed in the Uluru statement from the heart. It was, you know, think of that as an ambit claim, if you like, for Indigenous people. Well, this is what we want. Okay, now let's start negotiation. Yep. No negotiations whatsoever. Albanese said, well, that's what you want. Okay, all right, well, I'll agree to the lot. Truth, treaty, tr- uh, truth-telling, treaty, voice. You can have the lot. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> he's, no Donald, he's no Donald Trump, is he? I mean, if you... He would, uh, he'd it, be no good. He'd be absolutely useless, wouldn't he, trying to sell something on, on, uh, on Gumtree? <laughs> you know? <laughs> He'd ring up. He'd ring up Tobias, an old fridge or something, to go in his fri- in his in his garage, and the bloke is bloke selling some sort of twenty year old Westinghouse monster fridge. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you want for it, mate? Oh, five thousand bucks. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> Pretty soon he's going to be trying. He'll, he'll be he'll be flogging off uh, several thousand useless windmills on Gumtree and. Uh, uh, he's going to have to find someone to buy them. But let's. Uh, one of the things that uh, I thought you and Stephen Shavira um, actually got to the, uh, the 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 one aspect of this debate that no one seems to be looking at is what what is the ultimate objective? I mean, at the moment, the government is saying they need the voice and that will solve the problems. But how long will it last for? You and Stephen uh, got very much got to the heart of it. Let's get to the second grab from your show. If indeed the purpose of the Voice of Parliament was to improve the lot of Indigenous people, to bring them out of, you know, to close the gap, as you say, reconciliation, as we once talked about it, 
if that was the aim, then surely we, that we must expect there will be a point when we will accomplish that aim, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 500 years, I don't care, but there, we, we expect an end point to that. But by putting this in the constitution, it seems to me, there will be no end point. You, you, you will always be separate, you will always be different, and you will always be treated a different way. Absolutely, and that is incredibly, uh, that will prove to be more and more divisive over time. You're absolutely right. Uh, if the point of this voice to parliament is purely as a mechanism, it's a mechanism to close the gap, then there really is, then it, it's potentially quite counterproductive to enshrine it in the constitution. Well, as I've mm. said, uh, as I said last week, Nick, and I've said a few times on my own show, the, the, the voice to parliament is an abandonment of the Judeo-Christian principle upon which our freedom our, uh, and our prosperity is based, and that is that all people are equal. And for, for the, if this gets up into our constitution, we will be forever different, separated. And then there will be no end to this problem. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? This is a this is a break from the old idea that you know Bob Hawke came up with this concept of reconciliation, and it's not perfect, but you sort of it works in that it says, well, we will reconcile. We'll get to that point, but because they're saying we will never reconcile. And I was talking to my um, my mate Leighton Smith in the week. Leighton Smith does a podcast out of New Zealand, out of Auckland, on News Talk ZB. And um, he pointed out to me, and I didn't know this, that in New Zealand, they introduced Maori uh, pol positions in Parliament, so special, you know, Maori MPs. Only Maoris could appoint that certain number of MPs. And they said it would be a temporary measure, you know, just till we get to the point where Maoris have achieved that equality. Well, of course, it's still there, and it will always be there, because no government is going to stand up and abolish that temporary measure and risk being accused of anti-Maori. Yeah. But again, they, they've, of course, gone a long way down this road, and, and we should use them as a an object lesson in not what not to do. And, and you know, the point about the treaty, and Stephen Trevor read, he done more than I had, he read all the documents and read all into it. And, of course, they say, well, what what is a treaty? It could be two sovereignties. So Australia could actually be two countries. We could be divided up, you know, like like the island of Hispaniola is Dominican Republic and Haiti. We could have the same arrangement. Now, I'm not sure that's part of the deal, is it really? That's not, no. I don't, I mean, you can only, isn't it better we just have one sovereignty and it's colorblind so everybody can say, well, I'm an Australian. Yeah. That's nothing to do with saying whether I'm white or black or Aborigine, whether my ancestors have been here for 67,000 years or whether I've only just got my citizenship paper and the, the ink's still not dry. Everybody is the same. I would have thought that's a much better way than start dividing up in the country into separate. Well, it's the, yeah. I, I mean, we say it. Uh, we said it last week, and you and I say it often to each other. You, you can't abandon the principles upon which this civilization was founded, and one of those Precisely. is equality mm. before the law, equality, you know, before your fellow citizens, and um, you know, freedom to freedom to own land. I mean. You know, our, our, even, um, I mean, the Calvary Hospital uh, um, incident, uh, which came to a very symbolic head this week when, uh, I should I should explain the background, Calvary Hospital is on uh, leased land 
in the capital territory. It's run by the Catholic Church. It had, I think, 79 years to go on its lease, I think, if uh, I remember correctly. And the, the Australian Capital Territory Government just simply marched in and repossessed it. And uh, there is there doesn't seem to be much that the Catholic Church can do about that, but I am re reliably informed that there are some heavy hitters uh, from the conservative uh, side of politics who are about to go into bat for the church. Um, but, you know, seemingly too late because the, the ACT government sent in the cranes on Monday or Sunday and, uh, and very symbolically removed the cross from, the, uh, from outside the, the hospital. Now, that um, might not disturb people who are not affiliated with the Catholic Church, and so be it, um, or even aren't Christians, and so be it again. But if they can do it to them, they can do it to you, just as they're doing it to, say, for example, Nigel Farage and Lawrence Fox in, in Britain, who have just for seemingly, because they're conservative, have had their bank accounts cancelled. I spoke to... Um, Dan Wild of the IPA on my show on Monday uh, from the southwest of WA where farmers, I, <laughs> here's an interesting story, Nick, I began my journalistic career in the southwest of WA uh, in a little town called Bridgetown and uh, Dan had only just recently passed through there. All the farmers, I know that area very well, the farmers there, some of those farms can be traced back to the original settlers. You know, mm. these are this, where's, where's Bridgetown, incidentally. It's, a, it's located about an, in relation to Esperance. Well, you, well, yeah. <laughs> well, you'd know where Margaret River is. Being a being a, a hardcore surfer yourself, Nick, you'd know where Margaret River is. It's an hour inland from I there. <laughs> I, I think of it. It's not so much the surf as the wine that. Right. I okay. well, <laughs> it's a lovely spot. We had a lovely a lovely yeah. stay there. Well, Dan was saying from the southwest that the, he says the anger there is white hot because the recently departed Mark McGowan. On, on his way out the door, the former Premier of Western Australia, on his way out, left behind legislation that said if you have a block of land bigger than 1,100 square metres, which is a little bit bigger than your average quarter acre block, you have to seek permission from the local Aboriginal elder if you want to make any significant changes to that block, which, uh, according to Dan, would include so much as digging in a fence post. Farmers are absolutely livid about this, and as he pointed out, they are th these are people who are busy working on the farm, and they're now they now find themselves up against pro professional agitators from the city who've got nothing else to do. Yeah, it's a terrible so, law. Yeah, mm. so I mean, my, the point my point being is here's another example of our founding principles being abandoned. The the rule of yeah. of, 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 uh, of property ownership is a fundamental. To go back to that Calvary Hospital incident, Fred, the removal of the cross by these huge cranes. Now, have you ever been in this situation? You, somebody comes up on Facebook, somebody had posted that picture, and I looked at it aghast. I just felt choked up. You know, I just could not believe my eyes and felt I wanted to repost it, but I just thought it was too distressing. I just thought yeah. I'm not going to conflict anything. It, it, it's deeply distressing mm. to to me as a as somebody who's Christian, but I think it should be distressing to all of us because it's our heritage. They're trashing, and funnily enough, I, I drove past the Calvary Hospital um, this afternoon, as it happened. I was just uh, in Canberra just uh, uh, to see my, my grandson, who lives a couple of kilometres from the Calvary Hospital, and, and I'd, I'd, you know, I'd never really noticed the Calvary Hospital 
particularly before, but I just felt this enormous sense of sadness, really, that this and 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 the arrogance and and of course everybody in Canberra knows that the Canberra the Calvary Hospital is a very good hospital up to now, is now just going to become just your run of the mill. Uh, state you know well what you're talking about it's a very bad yeah yeah uh, sorry to interrupt but what you're talking about there nick is the despair that a lot of us feel um yeah i mean you don't even have to be christian really to feel the despair that uh, we are living um through a time of um where uh, there are particularly evil or if you're christian you'd call them satanic forces at work um, trying to undermine the civilization that we've inherited. Now, that actually brings to mind a, a very nice interview that went up on ADH Today on the great Lyle Shelton's show. He interviewed Michelle Pierce, who's the new CEO mm. of the Australian Christian Lobby. She's got Lyle's old job back in the days when uh, yeah. he was being bombed for <laughs> speaking his mind. Mm. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not the safest job in town. But she actually he asks her what keeps her going. I haven't got the grab handy, but I do uh, recommend listeners to uh, have a look at Lyle Shelton's show on ADH.TV and listen to the interview with yeah. Michelle Pierce. She's very uh, resolute about what keeps her going through these uh, difficult times. Now let's go oh, to another. I'll definitely listen, listen to that, Fred. Yeah. I, I think the ACL, let's give them a bit of a shout out. They're a very important institution, uh, you know, not just in representing their constituency, the Christian Christian people in the halls of power, but also just standing up robustly for conservative values on so many issues. It's, they just, I mean, they're not, they're apolitical, right? They're not supposed to be liberal or labor, but they sure do uh, come down on the side of solid conservative values. Well, and, that's uh, it. Yeah, I mean, they're a I, great, great I had a, um, institution. Yes, yeah, and indeed. And um, I, I used a. Um, I, I had talked about this on my show at the start of my show on Monday, and pointed out that um, there are the the reason um, Christians are the first to defy the orders to uh, comply with um, unreasonable laws, there are two reasons, in my opinion, why Christians are the first to defy them. One is they they actually answer to a higher authority, not Canberra or, you know, Macquarie Street or whatever, or even, you know, uh, the, the, the cops that come banging on their door, if, if, if that be the case, but also they're not afraid. Um, so mm. yeah, I mean, you, you, you see this happening quite often these days and, uh, yeah. So anyway, let's go to, um, another grab. This is from the world in 60 minutes, uh, one of the shows by spectator TV on ADH TV. And this is, this is, uh, listeners might pick up a slight, slight of, uh, somewhat of a sleight of hand by Ian Plymer talking to Alexandra Marshall. Can you please explain how the earth is already sitting at net zero because we've got a whole stack of just stop oil kids saying that uh, that's not true and throwing orange paint everywhere? Well, we have the beauty of satellites and we can measure things with satellites and we can measure the number of trees on the planet with satellites. And we've done that over the whole planet. Now, the countries like Canada, which doesn't have many people, but a lot of trees, especially in the southern part of Canada, 
we can measure the number of trees and then we can measure the amount of carbon dioxide that Canadians produce from burning uh, petroleum, from coal, uh, from smelting, from refining, much of which is done in Ontario and New Brunswick. Um, and uh, we can then do a sum. And we work out that in Canada, the trees suck up far more carbon dioxide than the Canadians emit. Well, that's a bit. <laughs> he's being, he's having a bit of fun with the words there. I love the way Ian just is so oh, irreverent that oh, he can uh, he can oh. reinvent net zero. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, no, he's he's terrific. And but he points out a very important thing. And this was, I mean, I, I wasn't great at science, but I picked up this point. You know that that carbon is a cycle. It goes out yes. into the atmosphere, and then plants uh, sequester it. Uh, through you know combination of sun, uh, water, um, it means that they absorb the carbon back into the plant, goes down into the roots, into the soil, enriches the soil, might go out again and then back round the circle. Of course, some goes via the ocean. The ocean absorbs carbon too, but it's a cycle. But we've taught kids, and everybody seems to think these days that man produces carbon and just sends it in huge quantities. We can't produce carbon. Like there's a, There is a finite amount of carbon in the Earth's system, either in the atmosphere or the ocean or the land, and it just goes round and round. Because when you think about it like that, it's a, completely different, it's a completely different issue, isn't it? Because you can then think, well, maybe we could actually solve uh, if we think there's an imbalance of carbon in the atmosphere and that's a problem, as people seem to, well, maybe we could work out ways to get more plants, absorb it. And and it's happening, actually. It is happening naturally. I don't know if you notice around Sydney, but whereas before, you know, they'd have a big concrete plaza with no greenery, now they're just naturally, when they redesign those things, putting greenery in, or even on the side of buildings or tops of buildings, more greenery, which yep. is great because that is a a carbon absorption mechanism. It also keeps the building cool and the plaza cool. We're yep. kind of learning this. And uh, I do think that the soil carbon issue, you know, people roll their eyes at this, but this is the – Australia's got this huge potential to absorb more carbon just by changing our farming methods, as some people are doing. Do you know Rupert Murdoch – or not Rupert Murdoch, but a farm owned by Rupert Murdoch – is selling carbon credits to Bill Gates. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? He's yeah. just doing that through using better farming techniques that absorb the carbon into the soil and then they get a credit and Bill Gates buys that because he wants to be carbon neutral. I rather love that. The roof, Rupert Murdoch <laughs> is selling carbon credits. <laughs> That's uh, great. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, okay, let's move on to our last grab for the day because – we uh, we didn't record this. We actually uh, it was given to us by the by Jared and Anne, Anne Henderson at the Sydney Institute. Angus Taylor, who's a, a close friend of yours, Nick, delivered uh, quite a uh, I wouldn't call it quite a landmark speech, but it was it, it was a, a very uh, solid planting of the flag in the sand. Uh, on Monday night, and uh, he very eloquently outlined just how inadequate Labor is at the moment. Let's have a listen. A year of economic decline under Labor reflects a government prioritising its own aspirations over those of everyday Australians. Whether it's Labor's Canberra voice or its union-led IR agenda, these are the wrong priorities for our current challenges. Worse, they are divisive at a time when Australians are hurting most. 
Yeah, th- this is um, spot on. Spot on, absolutely. I mean, Labor is just so preoccupied with politics, uh, and um, the, the people are hurting. Inflation, uh, energy prices. Uh, you know, you can't. It's hard to find. I mean, we we live at a time of apparent, uh, supposedly full employment, but it's 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 hard to find good staff these days. It's you know, I mean, the, yeah. the economy. We don't make anything anymore. It's um, yeah. This is the reason I chose this grab, Nick, is that this is a very good opportunity for the coalition to step up and offer itself as a very sensible alternative to a government that, that uh, in the uh, to quote the the, the uh, infamous words of uh, Julia Gillard, has lost its way. Yeah, and Angus is. Um He's a smart fellow, as you know. He's a, always the smartest person in any room he happens to be in, uh, which I think is why Malcolm Turnbull uh, never really gave him any promotion <laughs> that he deserved. He didn't. He didn't want somebody smarter than him in the cabinet room. Although yeah. probably there were quite a number of people smarter than him. But yeah. the, it, it, the 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 <laughs> point about this is Angus doesn't. He's a country kid, right? He lived, he brought up in Cooma, and he he you know he just grew up in the country. He's not a sort of inner city elitist sort of person uh, like Albanese who's grown up all his time in the inner city and his electorate of course Hume covers everywhere from Goulburn right up to the edge of Sydney I think goes up as far as Campbelltown now so he's in that mortgage belt he 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 has to deal in his electoral job with with those people who actually feel that mortgage rise right and Mm. that's only about a third of the country you know, you wouldn't feel it if you lived in Mossman because you probably, chances are you probably own your house outright or you've got a lot of money, but you do feel it in those mortgage pockets and and that is where the pain is building. And and he gets that and realises how off-key Albanese is. And he also... But, is the, but well, he gets it, but you're, you're better, you're more tuned into the uh, party than I am, Nick. Uh, how much does the party get it? How how eager is the party to take up this fight? I think under Dutton they are. Uh, they're doing very well, but of course, you know, that's only one parliament and mm. only one one party room. But but I think you could hear well, we've had today Peter Dutton on energy spot on. He's yep. taking on that issue, yep. and Angus Taylor when he when he became shadow treasurer. After the election, he had a, had a number of conversations. He had a very clear idea what he wanted to do, return to the basics, you know, debt, deficit, reducing the tax burden and, uh, and, and looking after people who are the productive part of the economy, very much Menzies' sort of message, not penalising them with heavier taxes and not getting carried away with all sorts of woke schemes that don't mean nothing to them and just end up costing money. So... I think he is very focused on that, and and I could see he worked hard on the, the the language in this speech. I think he's going to be a very positive uh, force in favour of liberals coming up to the election. They've got a mountain to climb, of course, but I think in in terms of what they're doing, what Dutton's doing in in the shadow cabinet and the, and the party room, it's hard to fault them. It was a carefully worded speech, and one of the key points was that every period of significant inflation in Australia has led to a change of government to the coalition. So 
you know, when you well, say that. It's interesting in itself that every every period of significant inflation has occurred under Labor. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you do the math. What, but, what, but, but yeah, what's that thing from the you, importance you, of being earnest? You yeah. know, that line from the importance of being earnest. You know, to, to, what's it, to, to, <laughs> lose, lose one, to lose one parent yeah. could be regarded as unfortunate. To lose both sounds like carelessness. <laughs> 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 but you say they've got a mountain to climb. I mean, Angus says that inflation leads to a new coalition government. I mean, that, that should mm-hmm. be a green light for the coalition to start thinking, well, we can win the next one. Yeah, I think so. I, I, well, they definitely do. I mean, I, I, I like I like Dutton's kind of attitude. There's no point in sitting around as leader if you don't think you can win. I mean, who was mm, that yeah. lead? Remember that leader in WA? Who was the young guy leading the Liberal Party? Oh, name I sort of erased from the pages of yeah. history. But he, <laughs> he he went into the election came say, election campaign saying we can't win. Like you, <laughs> you can't. Win. Yeah. Well, if he, you're not going to win then, are if you? If he was <laughs> wicket-keeping for Australia, he wouldn't have thrown the ball. <laughs> no, no. So just as a – we're almost no. out of time, Nick, but just as a uh, as a parting shot, so to speak, I thought I'd um, raise with you a moment. I haven't got the audio grab, but if uh, if people are interested, they can go to my Twitter feed and see, the, see this. I posted on it a couple of days ago. There was an economist from Cornell University in the United States who was at that World Economic Forum uh, conference in China. Now, if if you were to get, if there was ever a a meeting where you were unlikely to hear someone speak about the perils of central control, that would be it. You know, you'd, you'd <laughs> expect everyone to be going, oh, yeah, we need to centralise everything, you know. Anyway, this, uh, th- this gentleman uh, economist said that central bank digital currencies, and just as an aside, I have to say that Australia is, is moving very quickly and deliberately down the road towards one. In case you hadn't heard, the Reserve Bank is, uh, is investigating it and like most... Um, modern economies uh, is is very deliberately heading towards acquiring one in lieu of cash I should add this economist said be very be be careful because he the word he used was dark this could this is a dark place because the government then has the authority and the power well not the authority supposedly but the power at least which, uh, given the past few years, they most politicians would be uh, inclined to use the power to determine how you spend your money, and they could even magically make it disappear if you uh, were deemed a uh, a a, 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 a disobedient citizen. Now, it's probably a bit of a uh, a dystopian note to finish on, Nick, but. Well, Are you, I, as you know, I mean, as I am it, about central bank digital currencies. I'm probably not as wise as you, but I am aware and concerned, and uh, I'm going to keep my money under the bed. I think, but yeah. for that, <laughs> it, it was. Didn't you think it was a great one of those great, really goosebump moments when the the World Economic Forum went to Beijing was held in Beijing? It's like. It was like the 2004 Olympics, you know, when they went home to Athens. <laughs> it's like the, <laughs> the, the great spiritual home. <laughs> it was the great reset. <laughs> yeah. Now, careful. Yes. That's, that's laces. You're being laces now. <laughs> 
Well, okay. Well, well, I think that's it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you want to uh, hear any elaborations on the uh, on on what Nick and I have discussed here, have a snoop around the adh.tv website, or better still, download our app for your phone or smart TV. And uh, we'll see you next week.